Lord, we are just grateful tonight. Grateful tonight for your presence. Grateful for the fact that you are here with us, Lord. We're just thankful to be here. God, I pray tonight that you would give me the words as we open up your scriptures. As we look into the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, God, would you just help me to have the words? Whatever it is uh, that you want us to hear tonight, would your spirit speak to me uh, so that I could offer it to your people? God, would you help me to be prepared uh, as I'm worried we're facing some technical difficulties? Would you help us to be to be ready to hear your voice, Lord. Let nothing stand in the way. Let there be no distractions. Let there be nothing. Uh, we just desire to hear your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I think maybe Tyler, you can run back. Nate, do you have it Have it covered there, man? It should just be, a, I think it's the same slideshow. But for some reason, it shut off there. Um, Lathan, good to see you, buddy. You made it. Yes, thank you. Love you, man. Glad you're here. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about Genesis 37. So if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to turn there if you have them with you. If you don't, that's okay. We should have the words on screen. Um, we'll see if that's the case shortly. I don't know if I can pull it out from memory. I can give you the gist. I don't know if I can get it all. Let me see here. Go through our... Ah, there we go. Oh, it's nice to see that. I mean, it's not like a pretty sight. But I love the picture. Very, very special. All right. Tonight we're doing Genesis 37. 1 to 36. We'll cover the whole chapter. I titled this week, Hatred Among Brothers. A theme that is very common to us if we followed this story in Genesis, right? Uh, This is not something new. And tonight we're going to see what's become of Jacob's family. What's going to be playing out in the family. If you remember, we just finished the Jacob cycle. Now we're turning to Joseph here. And in this part of the story, we just read Esau's genealogy as we've talked about. It starts with the unchosen line, right? We saw Cain and then we saw the line of Seth. We saw the line of Ishmael and then we saw the line of Isaac. And last week we looked at the line of Esau. This week we'll look at the line of Jacob. So it starts in this way, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. So now it's going to talk about Jacob's lineage, where his family is going. And in particular, it's going to focus on, of course, his sons, his 12 sons. Now, this is interesting because if we followed the Jacob cycle, remember there were... Three vignettes at the beginning of the Jacob cycle that explained the relationship between Jacob and Esau. And those three were, firstly, the wrestling in the womb. Remember, Rebecca had them wrestling in her womb, and she didn't understand why that was happening. And so she went, and, and it seems like she received a prophecy about who these two men were, that they actually represented two nations in her womb. And that was the first vignette. And already, before they were even born, they were at war. And then the next one we saw was the, the taking of the, the birthright or the, the firstborn right. Remember, he, Esau steals it, or Esau sells it for a, a bowl of stew. And Jacob, he's able to take it. 
And then lastly, the much longer vignette is Genesis 27, where you have the story of the stealing, the deception of Jacob, and the stealing of the blessing, right? The same thing happens here. Joseph's following in his father's footsteps. There's three vignettes that are going to help us understand the relationship between the, the brothers. So it starts here. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and, the, and his father's wife, excuse me. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now remember, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, those are the concubine wives of Jacob. And who's Joseph's mother? Well, Rachel, the favored wife. So you can imagine these boys already, the sons of Zilpah and the sons of Bilhah, that they already don't feel like they're important. Right? They're second-class sons. And what does daddy's favorite do? <laughs> the first thing he does is he goes and tattles on them. Now this is interesting. I've never really considered this till I was studying this week as I was looking up some of these, these stories. Um, what's interesting is that word, a bad report. And there's actually two ways to understand this passage based on that. One really follows in the line of, of Jacob and really makes Joseph look a lot like his father. The other shows J- Joseph as a, right- a more righteous man than his father. And that word bad report, everywhere it's used in the Bible, almost exclusively with, with one or two exceptions, means a slanderous report. It's not true. That bad report means that it's something that's not, uh, it, it's, it's, it's defamatory, right? That's the implication. In fact, it's the exact word that's used when the spies in numbers go into the land and they're scared and they bring back a bad report. It's not that the land isn't good. The land's actually good. They come back and lie and say, hey, no, the, the, we could never take this land. And it's not even that great. There's giants there. Remember, they give this terrible report. It's the same word. And so one interpretation is that Joseph is coming back and he's, he's lying about his brothers. That Joseph is using his words in defamation of his brothers. Which is possible. It's a one possible interpretation. If you think about it, it kind of sounds like his dad. The deceiver. Right? How Jacob started out. Stealing the birth, the blessing, you know, conniving for the birthright, all those kind of things. I tend to not think that's the case. I actually tend to think Joseph's a righteous man pretty early on. And I think that probably the bad report just means that they were not doing what they should be doing as they shepherded. And so Joseph comes back and tells his dad, regardless, the result is the same. (laughs) The brothers do not like Joseph. They do not have any fondness for him. Okay, that's the first vignette. The second is this. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. They could not even bring themselves to be civil in Joseph's presence. There was just something about the relationship that was so broken that they couldn't bring themselves to be in right relationship with him. And again, this is long standing. We saw it from their mother's day, right? 
When Leah and Rachel are competing for Jacob's affection, competing for favor, who's going to be the chosen wife? And of course, we know Jacob from the outset loves Rachel and, and doesn't love Leah. And yet, in the, in the odd divine scheme of things, Leah keeps having kids and Rachel's barren. Right? But finally, she has a son, and that son is Joseph. And so Jacob's affections are all for Joseph. They're all for Joseph. And so you see here, man, the brothers just cannot stand this guy. And and if that's not bad enough, get this. Joseph had a dream. (laughs) And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, that seems maybe obscure to us. We're not generally agricultural. But clearly, the brothers understand understand it perfectly. Their interpretation of the dream is exactly right. They understand what Joseph's saying. Because they say to him, His brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And again, if this bad report interpretation is correct, this is kind of the the arrogant Joseph coming out and speaking his dream. Hey, guess what? You're all going to be bowing down to me one day. I don't know if that's the right interpretation. I think Joseph is earnest. He's an earnest man, and he shares his dream. He, he sees that there's a prophetic element in it. He's trying to share it. He's not done dreaming yet, though, is he? He stabbed still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, by the way, you think at this point Joseph would have learned? Maybe I should stop telling my dreams to people. Uh, he, he's pretty oblivious if he doesn't know how much his brothers hate him at this point. I mean, that's the refrain over and over. His brothers can't stand him. They can't even speak to him nicely. And so he's like, hey, guess what? I had a dream. I know you guys uh, just constantly like cussing me out and stuff, but I I have a dream I want to tell you real quick. Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. He pondered it. He kept it within him. Now, this is two dreams. Two dreams in which Joseph has had this ruling, reigning understanding. And guess what? It's not just the sheaves that are coming to bow down. Even the sun and the moon are coming to bow down. What's that implying? The great stars, his parents. Even those who are meant to be his elders, even those who are meant to have authority over him, are going to come and bow down to him. So what's his father say? How dare you? This is not our culture. They're not flippant with the relationship towards elders. (laughs) They're not bucking against it. This is a culture in which your parents are are next to God for you, right? Respect God, respect your parents. That's the culture they live in. And so he's rebuked for it. But Joseph is still loved. He's still the beloved of his father, despite the rebuke. 
Okay, there's the second vignette is these dreams. And man, you can see already this hatred is definitive on their relationships. And so what we're about to see in this third vignette shouldn't be that surprising to us. The, the end makes sense. Verses 12, here starts the third scene. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. So Jacob said to Joseph, Now go and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, a question is, why are the brothers all shepherding and Joseph is not? Why is Joseph the one child? I'm sure Benjamin is so young, he's probably not out there. But why is Joseph the one child not out there shepherding? Probably because his brothers can't stand him. And Joseph may not know it. He might be oblivious. But I I imagine Jacob knows. Why is he sending his son out there? He knows the relationship. In fact, he's the one who created the dynamic that made the relationships as they are. But he goes out. Oh, sorry. I think I double-clicked there. Nope. So when he's in Shechem, he goes to where his brother should be. And a man found him. And behold, Joseph was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved on from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So Joseph goes on. They're heading north. They're heading further and further away from where Jacob might have reach. Where Jacob might be able to protect his son Joseph, which is interesting. I don't necessarily think that's their plan. But Joseph is about 50 miles now from his home in Hebron. He's way up north. And all of a sudden the story's perspective shifts. To his brothers. So when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to him, to them, excuse me, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. It's interesting. Uh, have you ever wondered why they knew it was Joseph? He's wearing daddy's symbol. The symbol of daddy's love. They immediately can tell him from a distance. Oh, he's wearing that. Oh, that cloak. He's wearing the reminder that daddy loves him more than he loves us. And so from a distance they see him and they're like, they know it's Joseph. And their hatred is so great. Their jealousy and their rage so intense. They're like, let's, let's kill this kid. Who does he think he is? Now then, come and let us kill him, and we'll throw him into one of the pits. And we can say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Again, this sounds very harsh. This sounds very intense. But I don't know. I I just, I see that in families, even today. I can see that impulse in people. The brokenness of family. As we've walked through Genesis, if there's anything that has 
that it's convinced me of is that as, as important as family is, it can be so messed up. I mean, the first, outside of Adam and Eve and singing in the garden, the very first thing that happens, Cain murders his brother. It's the first thing. That impulse is deep. The jealousy, the rage, the hatred, the, the usurping. Why is Joseph the favorite? And again, this is stretched back into the life of Jacob. This is not coming out of nowhere. They don't hate each other out of the blue. I mean, this is going back to their mothers. And their mothers warring with one another. And it's going back to Jacob even before that. Jacob and Esau warring with each other. I mean, this is a long-standing feud. So that, hey, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Let's see if his dreams can come true while his body rots in this pit. But Reuben heard this. So who's Reuben? He's the oldest, right? This is Reuben. He's the oldest. And he feels some sense of responsibility for for his father's son. And so he says, it, it says that he rescued him out of their hands. He said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. He said it that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So Reuben, he's got this idea. Listen, let's just throw him in this pit. Don't touch him. Don't kill him. Just throw him in the pit. And and let's let that be a lesson to Joseph. That's the idea. Let, Let that be a lesson. We'll throw him in the pit, leave him there for a while. And Reuben, of course, has the intention to come back for him, to save him, to rescue him from from the bloodlust that the other brothers have. But it seems like Reuben must leave or something. He's like, hey, I got to go take care of the sheep. Just throw him in the pit. I'll be right back. Because what happens is something different. When it came about, when Joseph reached his brothers, that they stripped him of his tunic that very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty without any water in it. The point of that, he's not going to drown in there. He's just, it's an empty pit, a dry pit. And then what do they do? Look at the callousness. Then they sat down to eat a meal. Now, we don't have, I think, a good, a good understanding of this because we kind of just see, like, again, the words just kind of pass over us. What do you think Joseph's doing in this moment? He's probably screaming and wailing and crying and weeping. He's just been stripped. Probably, they probably beat him up some and threw him in a pit. He's not quiet. We actually know he's not quiet. Because later on when the brothers come to see him and he reveals himself, he actually says that, he, that, that it's Reuben who actually says, I told you not to touch him. He's talking to his other brothers. He says, I told you not to touch him. They don't, know it's not, they don't know it's Joseph yet. He says, I told you not to touch him. And when he was crying out for mercy, that's why this is happening. Because he cried out for mercy and we didn't listen. So we know that Joseph's screaming. He's pleading for his life. What do they do? They sit down. Let's have a meal. Heinous. But as they raised their eyes... And they looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh. And they were on their way to bring those things down to Egypt. Judah's crafty. 
Judah's got a plan. Judah said to his brothers, Hey, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Listen, we don't need to kill him. Let's at least make some money off him. Let's at least sell him. It's not going to do us any good. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he's our brother. Yeah, okay. There's something there. He's our brother. He's our own flesh. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Right? Let's just sell him into slavery. That's better. And his brothers listened to Judah. And as these Midianite traders passed by, they pulled him up and they lifted Joseph out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Reuben came back. Right? Like I said, he must have left. Because now Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he rent his garments. He tore them. That's a sign of mourning, right? of great mourning, of great grief, to rip your clothes. So he he tears his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? When I bring this news, this report back to my father, how can I face him? As the eldest, as the one in charge, how can I face him if Joseph is gone? So they hatched a plan. They took Joseph's tunic and they slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the tunic back and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Now I want to stop here for a second. Because remember, I want you to think about the gravity of what just happened between Joseph and his brothers. I've told you, the Exodus looms large over the book of Genesis because these books are written down almost certainly after Sinai, right? So the events of Exodus are are hanging large in their heads. And what's the question? The original readers of this book are going to be the Israelites, the Israelite nation. What's the question in their mind if they're thinking about their history? The story of Genesis is the story of Israel's history. What question are they asking? Well, the question they're asking, I think, is how could we possibly, 12 brothers, 12 brothers that operate like this, how could we have possibly become one nation? How could we have set these things aside? Look at the way we've treated each other. How could we have set these things aside and become one people? Jacob and Esau were brothers. They didn't become one people. How did we? There's 12 of us. And we've hated each other from the earliest days. How could we have become one people? The story of Joseph answers that question. By the time we get to the end of the story, we'll see how these 12 brothers became one people. That's the question that hangs in this story. But in the immediate... In the immediate, there's a, an interesting reference to what's gone on. And we've talked a lot about the reality of that somehow, just in the way of the world, the way that God has created things, sometimes things come back 
to haunt us. There are consequences that play out in our lives for the way we've lived. And I think this is a perfect example and a really interesting example. Because it seems like the narrator is trying to tell us that, J- that Jacob is in some way, in some sense, paying for his sins. And here's why I'd say that. What did Jacob do to his father? Well, he deceived him. And he stole the blessing from Esau. And what were the ways in which he stole the blessing? He was deceiving his father with his brother's clothes and the skin of a goat. Remember, he put the skin of the goat on his arms to make himself hairy. It's the exact way that the boys are now tricking their dad, Jacob, with their brother's clothes and a young goat. It's coming back home. (laughs) What Jacob has done in his life is coming back home to affect him now. The way that he treated his father, the, the despising that he did towards his father is coming back to rest on him. And I think the narrator is implying that by using these same elements to remind us this is exactly what Jacob did to Isaac. Now his own boys are doing it to him. So Jacob examined it and he said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and he put up sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. Now, This is important to talk about mourning for a second. What Jacob is saying when it talks about mourning is talking about the public ritual of mourning, which is something we're totally just as foreign to us. We don't understand. Because again, I don't know, maybe it's that European in us that we just, you know, we do the, the funeral for a day and then like, okay, mourning's kind of done at that point. You, you buried your, your loved one and, you know, you still have the internal reality, of course. But publicly, we don't do periods of mourning, which is really how the Eastern world has always operated. There is a public ritual to mourning. And that word that's behind mourning, mourning for his son many days, is about the ritual aspect. There's no doubt that Jacob is mourned for years and years and probably never would have gotten over the death of his son. Of course, we know how the story ends. We find out his his son actually isn't dead. But... If, if he never found that out, I'm sure Joseph would have mourned for Jacob all his life. Or Jacob would have mourned for Joseph all his life. But that's, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the public ritual of mourning. It's talking about wearing sackcloth. It's talking about wailing. It's talking about the, the ritual aspect of mourning. And so Jacob mourns for his son many days. It's clear he's in mourning. He's wearing the signs of grief. He's in sackcloth and ashes. And it says, all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Now again, this is also, this is outside the bounds of their culture, because there is a mourning period. 
And once you've fulfilled the period, you're, you're done mourning. Now, internally, that may not be true, but publicly, that is true. And what Jacob is saying when it says he refused to be comforted, it means he will not leave the public mourning space. He's saying, I am going to continue to publicly mourn for my son until I die. I will continue to be in sackcloth and ashes. I will continue to wail and grieve, and I will not be comforted. This is the affection and favor. And I can't help but think, I can't help but think, man, this plan must have backfired on them. Because what they were trying to do was eradicate Joseph from their life. And Joseph may be gone. His body may not be in the same space as them. There may be distance. But every time they look at their dad, they're reminded. Dad's mourning for Joseph. Every time they see him and they see what he's wearing, just like when they looked at Joseph and saw what he was wearing, every time they look at their father and they see him in sackcloth, they're reminded not only that Joseph still holds a special place in their father's heart, they're also reminded of the great evil they've done. The great evil that they did to their brother. So Jacob weeps for him. But meanwhile, meanwhile, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, they sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now that's where we stop for tonight. It's just this chapter 37. And it's a dark story. It's a dark place to end. One of the interesting things about the Joseph story is that God is so far in the background, it seems like. He doesn't speak in the story. In Jacob, we got used to seeing him in the Jacob cycle. We got used to seeing God appear and speak and say these things. And this story, which is so dark, what Joseph goes through, not just being sold into slavery, but then, of course, there's the, the sexual assault kind of piece with Potiphar's wife, and then going to jail uh, uh, for doing something righteous. He goes to jail, and then there's just all this turmoil, and Joseph is just left in that. And God isn't speaking. But yet, that refrain, like I told you at the beginning of, the, of, of this service, that refrain... The Lord was with Joseph. It keeps showing up. Because sometimes, even when we don't hear him, we just have to trust that God's at work. No matter how dark the circumstance, no matter how dark... I'm not trying to give you trite comfort. That's one of the things I hate most about kind of the American church is the way we offer trite comfort. It's all okay. It's all in God, God's hands. And we kind of like tell people like, get over your grief. Get over your grief. Like, it's all, it's all okay. We need to let people grieve. But there is something to be said about the fact that God is at work. That doesn't change our grief. It doesn't change the reality of what we're experiencing. Joseph is still going through the hell that he's living. It's still real. It's still there. But the Lord was with him. The only story I can really compare it to is Job. Which is the quintessential suffering story of the Old Testament. Job, who is, is just 
waiting. The whole point of Job is he can't, he's just waiting for God to speak. Just show up. Explain what's going on. And the beauty of Job, of course, is that Job never gets the answers that he wants. Why did this happen? Why am I being dishonored? Aren't I righteous before you, Lord? All those questions, they're never answered for Job. The beauty of Job is that despite the fact he never receives an answer, God shows up. I'm not denying there's a a piece of rebuke in Job that happens from the Lord to Job. There is a, a piece of that. But more than anything, the way the Lord answers Job's heart the cry of his heart and the questions that he has is by being present. And at the end, when God shows up to Job, Job's heart's desire is answered merely because God showed up. Job says, I will shut my mouth, I will not speak again. And I think in a large part because Job recognized when the Lord showed up that the Lord had compassion on him. That he was there. That he was not transcendent and far and distant. He was not that that archetype that we might have in our mind of the distant, disapproving, you know, father who just stands there and all he can do is judge and damn and, and, and you know, just do condemning things. But no, the God of compassion, the loving Father, the one who, as it says at the end of Job, the one who midwives for the goats in the mountains, things you don't even know that happen, I'm there. That God shows up to talk to Job. I think it's the same with Joseph. You're watching Joseph's life just train wreck. Just train wreck. Everyone around him seems to hate him. They want to kill him. His own brothers, they throw him in a pit and then have a nice meal while he wails. And then let's sell him into slavery. And it doesn't end there. And all all this time, at least in the story, I'm not saying maybe in reality God didn't have some words to speak to Joseph. Maybe he did. But as far as what we have, God never says anything to him. Joseph's just left there. But we're reminded. We're reminded as the reader that the Lord was with Joseph. And sometimes that's all we can count on. (laughs) Sometimes we don't have the strength to pull out our Bible and read. Sometimes we don't have the strength to make our lips pray. Sometimes we don't have the strength to even just... Turn on worship. Sometimes we just have to sit and accept that the Lord is with us. That's the comfort that Joseph receives. To sit and trust that God is present. I think we have to do the same. These are not easy days to live in. And man, what could be more typical of the experience of the world than in this day, now, 
than being alone. (laughs) Being without community. Being isolated. Being disconnected. I've got to trust that God is bringing his people through it. Knowing that even when they are alone without another human soul in sight, that they are not alone. But the Lord is with them. And even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like Psalm 23 says, the Lord is with me. He's leading me. He's guiding me. So my prayer for you tonight, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your life, maybe... Maybe life's going pretty good. I I don't know. That seems far-fetched to me at this point. But, maybe. (laughs) But the things that are so revelatory about God is in the dark moments, I think. And if you're in a dark moment now, if you're in a dark place, my prayer for you tonight is just that God would reveal himself to be present with you. That he's there. That you are not alone, even when you're alone. The Lord was with you. Tyler, why don't you come up and lead us in prayer?